So far in this letter to the Colossians, Paul has shared some amazing truths about the greatness of Christ, which can be applied to believers' lives in order to help them grow in spiritual maturity. In the last three sessions, we spent time looking at Paul's explanation for how believers are to master their old nature, which Christians will continue to battle until we receive glorified bodies at the appearing of Christ for the church. There are practices that believers are to avoid because they have no value against fleshly indulgence. And there are also attitudes and behaviors that believers are to put off, as well as Christ-like character qualities which believers should put on. All of these things will result in the renewal or transformation of believers as they grow in spiritual maturity, living in ways which please, honor, and glorify Christ. Many of these new character traits will be publicly apparent to others, But it's also possible that others, even within the body of Christ, the church, may not notice some of the more private attitudes and behaviors. There is one place, however, where it's very difficult to hide any aspect of one's character, and that place is within one's family and household. Those relationships are much more intimate and constant, so a person's true character will be more visible at home. This is the arena which Paul now moves into as he provides even more guidance for specific household relationships. In Colossians 3, verse 18, he says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Paul begins by speaking to the Christian wives, But his starting with them does not indicate anything in the way of priority, either negatively or positively. This is simply the way Paul typically begins in all of his epistles. He almost always starts by addressing those who are under authority before addressing those who will bear ultimate responsibility. Here in Colossians, Paul does not specifically say that it is the husband who will ultimately give an account to God for the welfare of his wife and household. But in the more detailed parallel passage in his letter to the Ephesians, he says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23. This was God's choice and design from the beginning, even though we may not fully comprehend the reasons for such an arrangement of accountability. In another of Paul's letters, he described God's structure of responsibility this way, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. This verse outlines a hierarchy of responsibility. The wife, then the husband, then Christ, then God. Jesus is the best example of someone who is under proper authority, and it may have been listed last in 1 Corinthians eleven three for emphasis. 
It's also possible that Paul put it last to encourage wives that when they are properly in subjection, they are like their Lord, who is also under proper authority. Now, the spiritual equality of men and women before the Lord is still fully in effect, as we see in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. One commentator has this to say about these relationships within God's structure of responsibility. It should be understood clearly that the term head and its corresponding opposite subjection have to do with rank, position, and authority, and not at all with ability. They denote positions in governmental or administrative organization. They do not in any way reflect inferiority or inequality. Proof of this is seen in the relationships within the Godhead. Christ is every bit as much God as God the Father. He is equal in essence, but he is second in the Godhead and subordinate to the Father in function. John chapter 4 verse 34 and chapter 5 verses 18 and 19. In another realm, an army captain may not be a better man, either physically or intellectually or morally, than a private but he is superior in rank and function. So the Christian wife, even though she may be superior to her husband in ability, in personality, even in spirituality, yet she recognizes his headship and gets in rank under him in the divine economy of the home. So here in Colossians chapter 3 verse 18, Paul says, Wives are to be subject to their husbands. This is the Greek word, hupotasso, which literally means to arrange under. It is a military term that means to be under in rank and describes the way that an army is organized by levels of rank. The middle voice of this verb indicates that their subjection is voluntary. A wife doesn't submit to her husband because he deserves it, but because God has put him in a position of responsibility and accountability for the wife and the household. In a sense, the wife becomes the gifted support system which makes it possible for the husband to give a good report to his superior for the state of the entire household. It is important to note that at the end of this verse, Paul added, as is fitting in the Lord. Fitting is the Greek word aneko, which literally means to come up to. It is often translated as something that is fitting proper, appropriate, or suitable. It is befitting the condition of being in Christ. So Paul is saying that it is only fitting or proper that a Christian wife would recognize and honor God's design for household accountability. The Apostle Peter said that even if a Christian wife is married to an unbelieving or disobedient husband, her obedience to the Lord's structure of responsibility can have a powerful influence on a husband, even though he may not be following the Lord. Peter said, In the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. First Peter 3 verse 1. 
Now we do need to recognize the wise advice of Acts chapter 5 verse 29, which says, we must obey God rather than man. This provides some boundaries for all human authority. For example, if a husband tells the wife to sin, she must recognize that ultimately she and her husband are both under a higher authority whose standards must be obeyed. When a wife is following God's design and is properly in rank with her husband, she has a position of tremendous influence in his life. She has the ability to properly appeal to her husband to change direction and to obey God. See the book of Esther for a good biblical example. Now in Colossians chapter 3 verse 19, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Paul now addresses Christian husbands. Husbands must also recognize the God-given structure of responsibility which puts them hupotasso, or under, in rank. As it says in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, all authority comes from God, and all those in authority are accountable to God for rightly fulfilling their responsibilities. Ultimately, every individual must answer to God for his thoughts, words, and deeds, but the one in authority will be judged more strictly. As the principle is stated in Luke chapter 12, verse 48, from everyone who has been given much, much will be required, and to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. This humbling truth should provide greater motivation for Christian husbands to do what Paul commands them to do. Paul actually gives husbands two commands. First, the husband is to love, agapao, his wife. As we have seen throughout this letter, agape love is the highest form of love, God's kind of love, and it is almost impossible for a person to display this kind of love without the help of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And this command is in the present tense, so it means that the husband is to be in the habit of continually loving his wife this way. As we have seen before, agape love is unselfish and giving, or even self-sacrificing to the point of giving up things for someone else. It is the kind of love that always has the other person's best interests at heart. As one commentator said, the word has little to do with emotion. It has much to do with self-denial for the sake of another. We can read this passage and think that Paul means husband be kind to your wife or husband be nice to your wife. There's no doubt that for many marriages that would be a huge improvement, but that isn't what Paul writes about. What he really means is husband continually practice self-denial for the sake of your wife. So now Paul adds, and do not be embittered against them. Embittered is the Greek word pikreno, which means exasperated to the point of irritation. This verb is a present imperative, which could be translated, do not have the habit of being bitter. As one commentator said, the implication is that perhaps the wife has given the husband some reason to be bitter. 
Paul says, that doesn't matter, husband. The husband may feel perfectly justified in his harsh or unloving attitude and actions toward his wife, but he is not justified, no matter how the wife has behaved towards the husband. Now, what we saw in the last session can be applied to husbands here. When something difficult occurs, which provokes a response, Christian husbands are to put off anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech. And they are to put on kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and forgiveness. And just as we saw previously, over all of these qualities, the husband is to put on agape love for his wife. This kind of servant-hearted, self-sacrificing love would go a long way toward making it easier for the wife to obey the Lord in her role in God's structure of responsibility. Because the husband and wife live in such closeness, opportunities for friction will be inevitable. The marriage relationship will probably be the first place that differences and difficulties may appear in all our relationships with others. So the husband-wife relationship will be the most obvious and important place for believers to put Paul's words into practice, as we've already seen in the last few sections of this letter to the Colossians. Now Paul will continue his pattern of addressing those under authority before speaking to the ones in authority. In Colossians 3 verse 20, he says, Children, be obedient to your parents in all things for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. To Christian children, then, he says, be obedient to your parents. The word obedient is the Greek word hupakuo, which literally means to listen under. It carries the idea of paying attention and choosing to respect and submit to the wishes of the parents. We should remember that Paul is speaking to believers here, so these are children who have reached the age of accountability and have placed their faith in Christ for their salvation. All children should be taught to do this, but here Paul commands believing children to listen, respect, and follow the wishes of their parents. This command obviously applies to the children who are living in their parents' household. Once children have grown to adulthood and have left to start families of their own, this command no longer applies in the same way. As adult children, they have the responsibility to honor their parents and to give consideration to their advice and counsel. As one commentator has said, when a child is grown and out of his parents' household, he is no longer under the same obligation of obedience but the obligation to honor your father and mother remains. Now, for Christian children, Jesus really provides the perfect example to follow. When he was only 12 years old, he went to Jerusalem with his family for the Feast of Passover. But when his family left for home, Jesus remained to speak with the teachers in the temple. His parents searched anxiously for him in Jerusalem and finally found him It seemed natural for Jesus to be in his father's house, but he saw how he had worried his parents. Luke chapter 2 verse 51 gives his response, And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, 
and he continued in subjection to them, and his mother treasured all these things in her heart. At the end of this verse, Paul gives the reason for Christian children to be obedient to their parents. He says, For this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Children who have put their faith in Christ for their salvation are not only growing in physical, mental, and social stature, but they are on the road to spiritual maturity as well. Even children can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, as we saw in Colossians 1 verse 10. Now in Colossians 3 verse 21, Paul says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. So on the other side of the coin, fathers, and really both parents, have a responsibility to treat their children well. The word exasperate is the Greek word erethidzo, which means to stir up, provoke, or irritate. This verb is a present imperative, so Paul is saying that fathers are not to be in the habit of continually exasperating their children. One commentator explained this in the following words, Parents, and especially fathers, are urged not to irritate their children by being so unreasonable in their demands that their children lose heart and come to think that it is useless trying to please their parents. At the end of this verse, Paul shared the inevitable consequences if fathers continue to treat them poorly. He says that they will lose heart. To lose heart is the Greek word athumeo, which literally means without passion, and by implication, discouraged to the point of hopelessness. As one commentator has said, children who are exasperated will not feel the love and the support from their parents like they should, and they will come to believe that the whole world is against them because they feel their parents are against them. This reminds us how important it is to season our parenting with lots of grace. We should be as gracious, gentle, forgiving, and long-suffering with our children as God is with us. What a great comment. Now, since God has entrusted these young, precious souls to our care, it becomes that much more important to treat them well by putting off anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech and by putting on kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and forgiveness, and of course over all of these to put on love. Christian fathers are no longer bound to follow ungodly or worldly patterns of child-raising. They're not tethered to the past or to societal norms that run contrary to God's ways. Believers can keep seeking the things above where Christ is, according to Colossians 3 verse 1, and we can follow Christ's example in all things, including his instructions for Christian parenting. Now in Colossians chapter 3 verse 22, Paul says, Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Paul now turns his attention to those who are Christian servants within the household. 
The word translated here as slaves is the Greek word doulos, which is commonly translated as servant or bondservant. In our day today, the topic of slaves and masters is considered anathema, and even using these words is discouraged or condemned. In Paul's day, however, being a servant under someone else's authority was the norm. One commentator has said that more than half the people seen on the streets of the great cities of the Roman world were slaves, and this was the status of the majority of professional people, such as teachers and doctors, as well as that of menials and craftsmen. So Paul is using an aspect of daily life in New Testament times to communicate a truth about how those under authority are to relate to those in authority over them, especially within a Christian household. The Greek word doulos is the same word that Paul used in his epistles at least 30 times to refer to himself, his fellow ministers, or to other believers generally as the slaves of Christ. Paul even used this concept to communicate an important truth about the incarnation of Christ himself when he said in Philippians chapter 2 verse 7 that Christ emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. So we can think of this term as being used generally to speak about relationships with those in positions of authority who are responsible for us. So far in this passage, we have seen Paul devote one verse each to wives, then husbands, to children, then parents. But now, instead of following that pattern and devoting one verse to servants, Paul writes four verses to servants before addressing masters in a single verse. Why did Paul use four times as many verses to address servants? One commentator says, It will be noted that this section is far longer than the others, and its length may well be due to long talks which Paul had with the runaway slave Onesimus, who later he was to send back to his master Philemon. Now, we're going to meet Onesimus in the final section of this letter, but for now we can assume that Paul learned quite a bit from him about the way servants typically behaved. This may have given Paul new insights which he used to correct that behavior for servants who are believers in Christ. He begins by saying, In all things obey those who are your masters on earth. As we mentioned before, there are limits to all human authority. When someone in a position of authority tells a believer who is under authority to sin, then the believer must acknowledge the higher authority of God, whose standards must be obeyed rather than the sinful wishes of men. As Paul said in the previous section, a believer must do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus because he graciously and humbly represents his heavenly master. But in the normal course of daily life, as someone in service to others, believers are to obey those in authority. The word obey is the Greek word hupakuo, which is the same one that was used for the obedience of children in verse 20. As it did there, here it means to pay close attention and to choose to respect and submit to the wishes of the one in authority. 
the words masters on earth could literally be translated as lords according to the flesh. This is Paul's way of referring to our earthly authorities, and it stands in direct contrast to a believer's master in heaven. Now, Paul ends this verse with a negative example of behavior, followed immediately by a positive example. First, he says, not with external service as those who merely please men. External service is the single Greek word, ophthalmadulea, which literally means eye service, or service that is given only while under the watchful eye of the one in authority. I'm sure that all of us can think of times when we ourselves or others we know have done this. We try to look busy when the boss is around, but as soon as he's gone, we take a deep breath and slow down or completely slack off in the work. This is the kind of work attitude that attempts to merely please men, as Paul says here. It means only doing the minimum amount of labor to just get by while the boss is watching. But we might ask this person, where is your pride in your work and your sense of personal accomplishment? Isn't that important to you? At the end of this verse, Paul is basically saying the same thing. Instead of a worker behaving like he just described, he says believers should work with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. They should put their heart into their work as a matter of personal integrity. The word translated sincerity is the Greek word haplotes, which literally means singleness or singleness of purpose. This contrasts with the negative example Paul presented of a worker who is two-faced or deceitful in working only when under supervision. One of the reasons why believers should work this way is because they have a master or supervisor who is always watching. As Paul says here, believers should fear the Lord, which means that they will be constantly aware of his presence and desire to reverence, honor, and obey him, no matter what their lords according to the flesh might say or do. What Paul has said here to the household servants is important and powerful in itself, but he goes on in the next three verses to elaborate on what he means. In Colossians 3, verses 23 and 24, he says, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Paul had already said in Colossians 3, verse 17, that whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. But here he is specifically speaking to workers under the authority of men. He says, whatever you do, in whatever field or occupation they are serving, they are to work heartily. In the last verse, Paul had already said they were to work with sincerity of heart. And there he used the Greek word cardia, heart. Here, though, he used the Greek word suke, which is the soul. Paul is saying that believers are to put their very soul into their work because they know they are working for the Lord rather than for men. 
This attitude toward work is really a simple matter of understanding who your real boss is. Since believers are trying to live lives that please the Lord, then this will apply to everything they do, including their work or service to others. Here in Colossians 3 verse 24, Paul goes on to explain that this involves a little more than knowing who your real boss is. It also involves knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward. This means that believers understand who is really giving them their paycheck, but much more is at stake than their earthly wages. This extends to their heavenly reward. Believers understand that our momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, according to 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17. Paul is referring to the inheritance of the saints of light, which he mentioned in Colossians 1 verse 12. They will be given a portion of the property and privileges waiting for believers in heaven for eternity. If there were any doubt, Paul now states it simply and clearly, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Believers are bondservants of Christ in subjection to his lordship. And Christ's standards of behavior and workmanship are what believers must attain to. In seeking to please Christ, they will certainly exceed the standards of their earthly authorities, not only with the quality of their work, but with the quality of their whole lives. In Colossians 3 verse 25, Paul says, For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Here, Paul states a general principle, but he specifically applies it to believers who are serving under earthly authorities. It's possible that Paul may have learned from Onesimus that the behavior of servants he described in the last three verses was so common that it required a specific warning to servants. Wrong is the Greek word adikeo, which comes from the root word of decay, meaning right or just. So adikeo means to be unrighteous or unjust, to actively do wrong, whether morally, socially, or physically, to hurt or injure, to be an offender. This verse in the original language contains only ten words. A literal translation might be, For the wrongdoer will be repaid the wrong, and without partiality. The phrase, will receive the consequences, translates a single Greek word, komidzo, which means to receive back. This is the same word Paul used in his earlier letter to the church in Corinth when he said, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 Whether in this life or the next, wrongdoers will suffer the consequences for their wrongs. The next phrase, of the wrong which he has done, translates the word adikeo, which is the same word he used in the first part of the verse for being unjust or doing wrong. The one doing wrong will suffer the consequences for his wrong. 
One commentator has said, It was possible for an unfaithful servant to wrong and defraud his master in a great variety of ways without being detected. But let them remember what is said here. God sees him and will punish him for his breach of honesty and trust. Now, the phrase, there is no partiality, translates the Greek word prosopalepsia, which literally means to accept the face. People tend to make judgments about others based on external qualities which they can see on the outside. This word describes someone who is a respecter of persons, someone who displays partiality or favoritism. But this is not true of God, who sees all and knows all, both inside and out. Romans chapter 2 verse 11 declares, For there is no partiality with God. One commentator summarized the message of this verse in these words, For ancient Christian slaves and for modern Christian workers, there is no guarantee on earth of fair treatment from those who they work for. Sometimes partiality means that bad workers are unfairly rewarded and good employees are penalized or left unrewarded. Paul assures both our ancient brethren and us that there is a final reward and punishment. And with this, there is no partiality. Now, in Colossians 4, verse 1, Paul goes on to address masters when he says, Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Paul turns from addressing the servants to addressing their masters on earth. They are to grant justice and fairness. Justice is the Greek word dikaios. It is a positive form of the word adikeo, which meant the opposite of justice. Even if a servant were to do wrong or behave unjustly, Paul commands the household master to grant justice. Fairness is the Greek word isates, which means equity or having equal proportions. It means they are to provide no less than what is due. One commentator has said this about the implication of Paul's words here. How astonished Roman lawgivers would have been if they could have heard Paul talking about justice and equity as applied to a slave. What a strange new dialect it must have sounded to the slave owners in the Colossian church they would not see how far this principle, quietly introduced, was to carry succeeding ages. They could not dream of the great tree that was to spring from this tiny seed precept. The reason Paul gives for masters to grant justice and equity is almost identical to the motivation he gave to the servants. Here he says, you too have a master in heaven. As one commentator said, you have a master in heaven is the great principle on which all Christian duty rests. Christ's command is our law. His will is supreme. His authority is absolute. His example is all-sufficient. 
Paul will go on to share here some instructions about the Colossians' prayer life before he mentions their relationship with outsiders. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, he says, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. In the original Greek sentence, the word prayer occurs first for emphasis. Paul could have used the Greek verb prosyukomai in the present tense to say, keep on praying. But instead he used the noun for prayer, prosyuke, and then follows it with a powerful verb. This is the Greek word proskartereo, which literally means to be strong towards something. It carries the idea of persisting in adherence to a thing, to be intently engaged in something, and to attend constantly to something. This is an imperative or command in the present tense, which emphasizes how constantly they are to engage in prayer. It sounds redundant to state it this way, but we could paraphrase this verse as continually be in the habit of persisting in prayer. When Paul says keeping alert in it, he used the Greek word gregoreo, which means to stay awake or be vigilant. Now, while certainly it's important to stay awake during times of prayer, as we can see in Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 to 46, believers should keep alert for opportunities to bring things before their Lord throughout the day. When something happens or when you learn about a new situation, is prayer your first thought? We should become more and more alert to opportunities to pray about all the things that we encounter in our lives. With an attitude of thanksgiving is literally in thanksgiving. Once again, Paul encourages a spirit of thankfulness, this time as part of a believer's prayer life. As was mentioned in a previous session, thankfulness is one of the main themes that appears throughout this letter. We see it mentioned seven times, so an attitude of thankfulness should permeate everything we do. One commentator suggested that there may be three stages of prayer that are illustrated here. He said the connection here with thanksgiving may suggest the threefold rhythm, intercession, watching for answers to prayer, and thanksgiving when answers appear. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, he said, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned. Now, as the first word in this verse, Paul does use the Greek word prosyukomai, which was mentioned previously. It is in the present tense, which means keep on praying, and this is the same word Paul used in Colossians 1, verse 2, and verse 9, when he said that he was constantly praying for them. Now he's asking them to pray for him and his ministry team whenever they're in prayer, and Paul gives them two prayer requests. First, he asks them to pray that God will open up a door so that he can preach the word. This is a metaphor that was used several other times, and he's asking that God would create an opportunity for him to speak the word of the gospel. 
He specifically identifies this word as the mystery of Christ. We know from how Paul previously used the term mystery, musterion, in this letter, that he is referring to the new revelation that God has given to the New Testament apostles and prophets for the church age. Paul then adds that proclaiming this mystery is the reason he has been imprisoned for so long. If we look at the last eight chapters of the book of Acts, we will see the series of events, as Paul says here, for which he had been imprisoned. It had been a long and difficult time of confinement for Paul, but the exact words he was speaking, which resulted in his imprisonment, are recorded in Acts chapter 22, verses 1 through 21. Paul had been sharing his personal testimony about what happened to him on the road to Damascus, where the Lord Jesus confronted him, and he came to faith in Christ. Then Paul shared these words, which Jesus himself had spoken to him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Acts chapter 22, verse 21. The next verse, Acts chapter 2, verse 22, says, They listened to him up to that statement, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Those Jews in Jerusalem were reacting against the words of Christ, which revealed a previously unrevealed mystery, that God had opened the door for the Gentiles to be included in the new entity called the body of Christ, the church, on the same basis as Jews. Jews and Gentiles alike would now be accepted by God on an equal basis, with the only requirement being faith in what Christ accomplished when he paid the ransom price on the cross to redeem the whole world. This was why Paul was imprisoned, and he asks for prayer that God might give him more opportunities like that. Colossians chapter 4 verse 4 says that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Paul's second prayer request was for guidance in exactly how he should present the word of the gospel so that it would have the greatest effect. He wants to make it clear. This is the Greek word phanerao, which literally means to bring something into the light. It has the idea of making something visible, making it apparent or making it known, as well as making it clearly and thoroughly understood. So Paul wants to be a better communicator. In the phrase, the way I ought to speak, the word translated ought is the little Greek word de. It conveys the idea of a necessity or a binding obligation, and in this case it means exactly what's needed in order to accomplish a specific goal. That goal is the salvation and eternal destiny of individuals to whom Paul is given the opportunity to speak. Each individual might require or need to hear something tailored specifically to his level of understanding in order to respond to the word of the gospel. This may be something that only God can give insight into at exactly the right time and place in a person's life. 
So Paul is requesting prayer that God would give him what is needed at just the right moment. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 5, he says, Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. So Paul now turns his attention to the Colossians and how they should behave toward those who are outside the Christian family and the church family. The words, conduct yourselves, is actually the single Greek word, peripateo, which, as we have seen previously, literally means to walk about. It was commonly used as a metaphor for all aspects of a person's lifestyle. In Colossians 1, verse 10, Paul told them he was praying that they might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Then in Colossians 2, verse 6, he said, As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Now, in Colossians 4, verse 5, he commands them to live and behave wisely before the watching world. One commentator expressed it this way, Presumably, these believers are a minority in their community. They have no church building, they have no New Testament, they are without gospel tracts. How are they going to commend the gospel? Paul points to their walk, their daily conduct in the sight of their fellows. He is saying that their conduct can have a powerful evangelizing influence on the unsaved. For if these people see a type of life that is superior to their own, the chances are good that they will want to inquire after its secret. This will lead to conversation about Christ and his saving work. Now, at the end of this verse, Paul says, making the most of every opportunity. Literally, he says, buying up the time. This phrase is unique to the Apostle Paul, and he adds it here because he wants us to be aware that our time is short, so we should make the most of it. He doesn't want us to waste a single moment behaving in a silly or sinful way that might ruin our testimony to those who are watching. In Colossians 4, verse 6, he says, Let your speech always be with grace, as those seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. One large part of our lifestyle and behavior involves how we speak to others. So Paul will finish this section by explaining how we are to talk with those around us. He literally says, The words of you always in grace. There is actually no verb here, but the meaning is clear. Whatever we say must measure up to the standard of grace, charis, which is defined as that which affords joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, loveliness, goodwill, loving kindness, and favor. Paul then adds that our words should be seasoned with salt, which may seem like an obscure way to explain what he means. This expression is not used by the other New Testament writers, so it seems unique to the Apostle Paul. He is saying that just like seasoning adds flavor to food and makes it more pleasant to eat, we should choose our words carefully so that they become more pleasant and agreeable to those who are listening. It's possible that Paul included this figure of speech here because of the report of an ancient salt deposit near Colossae, which supplied the surrounding area with salt. 
In any case, Paul commands believers to eliminate any coarse, crude, or unpleasant words from our conversation with those who are outside the family of God. Paul ends this verse by giving the reason why believers must carefully watch their words. He says, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. This phrase is very similar to what Paul asked the Colossians to pray for himself and his ministry partners in Colossians 4, verse 4. In that verse, he asked for prayer to know exactly what to say so that each believer would hear the words they need to hear in order to respond to the gospel. Now, in this verse, Paul again uses the same Greek word, day, translated should, but it expresses the same idea. For each person, each and every single one, we're obligated to share words that are tailored to their situation and their level of understanding. If our speech is gracious and appealing, then God will allow us to see exactly what is needed to respond to whoever we're speaking with. This is a tall order for all of us, since the tongue is so difficult to control in the best of circumstances. But just as we have the indwelling Holy Spirit to help us put off sinful attitudes and behaviors while putting on Christ-like qualities, he will also provide the insight that we need in order to speak with those outside the family of God in a winsome way. When we think of applying the truths in this section, it really is a simple matter of looking down the list of verses for the role or roles that you fulfill. For example, some of you may be husbands, fathers, and employees. So there are three passages that apply to you. Now, husbands, don't go to the passage about wives or children and start pointing fingers or laying blame, saying, you didn't or you never. Focus on the things that apply to you. How would you rate the consistency and alertness of your prayer life? When things arise during your day, are you bringing them to the Lord first? Which of your spiritual leaders do you need to add to your regular prayer list? What do you think you need to change in your behavior, especially toward unbelievers, that you regularly come in contact with? How would you rate the graciousness and pleasantness of your manner of speaking? Is there someone for whom you need wisdom in how to respond to meet their needs? Let's ask God for his help as we seek to be more Christ-like toward others around us.